Welcome to Reveal Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. Paul, the prisoner of Christ for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it is now being revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Not the Gentiles should be fellow heirs, or that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. Father, this morning we start a new chapter in the book of Ephesians that Paul started with the words, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ. This morning you open our hearts and minds. Let us hear that which you would have in store for us. And above all else, you glorify yourself through this message this morning. Hide me behind the cross, take this physical body out of the way, and let the only thing that's seen is you and your glory through your Son, Jesus Christ. This we pray in his name. Amen. Thank you. And you may be seated. This morning I entitled the message, Prisoner of Jesus Christ. And when I said we're only going to get through one verse, I meant we're only going to get through one verse. And we're going to be lucky to get through the one verse, but we're going to give it a good run this morning. For there is a whole lot in that very first verse of the third chapter of the book of Ephesians. You see, it answers a lot of questions that you may not have even known to ask. It answers a lot of questions about Paul. It answers a lot of questions about his attitude and his thought process as he was writing this book. But he starts off in the very first and he says, For this reason, or your version may say, for this cause... Uh, what was this cause that he was talking about? What was this reason that he's reflecting upon there in that very first verse? It's, it's really those first two chapters that we've looked at. It's for the cause. It's for the purpose, for the reason of his writing of those first two chapters of this book of Ephesians. For you see, I've told you as we've been studying this book of Ephesians that it's broken into two parts. The first three chapters of the book of Ephesians is all about the theology of the church. That stuff that you learn of what the church is and, and, and how the church should function and what's God's purpose in the church and all those theological background things, those things you have to know to be a true church member or a part of the church. And then the last three books, or last three chapters, four, five, and six, are taking those first three theological chapters and put them into application in your life. And Paul breaks right here in this third part, and, and he's really is starting into a prayer. You know, if you remember correctly, back in the first chapter, about the 15th verse or so, he started into another prayer. If you remember, he started in, and he, he said something along the lines of, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you. He started and just broke out right in the middle of that first chapter on this prayer for those that come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And here he's about to break into another prayer. That prayer actually started about the 14th verse of Ephesians chapter 3 when he says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. But as he got ready to start this, this prayer, on his mind was those things that he had written to the church. Those things that he had written to the body. 
And you have to understand a little thing about where Paul happens to be whenever he's writing this book. I've purposely held it off to this point to talk to you about it because he highlights it so well. As you read chapters 1 and chapters 2 of the book, you get this vision of Paul sitting at his desk in his office with a pen in hand, thinking about what God would have him say. And as he writes, he's, he's communing with God. and he's, he's getting up and taking breaks, and he's going and getting a glass of water, and people are bringing him food, and he's, he's hanging out, and he's writing this book. But in all essence, that's not what Paul was doing at all. He states it pretty plainly in the first verse of third chapter. He says, for this reason, based on those first two chapters, it says, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. We look at that and think Christ considered himself a prisoner of what Christ had done for him. That's not what he's saying. What Paul is saying is he was a prisoner, physically, literally, in jail. He wasn't a, just a prisoner of this salvation. He was physically locked up in jail. Is that surprising to you, having heard the first two chapters of the book of Ephesians? Did it sound like he was in prison in the first two chapters to you? It didn't to me. As I read the first two chapters, it didn't sound like he was in prison at all. But Paul had written this from a prison cell, sitting there locked and chained inside of a dungeon. He had written these glorious things. And he stops here and he says, It's for the reason of these glorious things, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles. What's so important about him saying that he's a prisoner? You see, each of us are a prisoner. We don't think about it, but we are. We're a prisoner to a lot of different things. For some of us, it's our job. For some, it's a bad relationship. For some of us, it's, it's health situations. For some, it's finances. For some, it's just unpleasant circumstances. We all, in some way or another, are a prisoner to something. If you really stop and thought about it this morning, there's this one nagging thing that is just on your back that you're a prisoner to. For many of us, we're a prisoner to what's going on around us in the world today. The way we as Christians are being treated, the way this government is, is constructing itself, the things that we see on the news. We worry about wars and we worry about different things and, and we're a prisoner to that news channel. <laughs> if I were to ask you to raise your hand if you watch Fox News religiously every day, I would imagine there'd be a rustle of sleeves as the arms went up if you were truthful. If I asked you to put your hand down if you didn't read the Bible as much as you watched Fox News, I would imagine the arms would go down in about the same haste they had gone up. See, we're a prisoner to Fox News, not a prisoner to what God says in the Word many times. But we're all prisoners to something. I just find it amazing that Paul was a prisoner as he wrote these things. Not that he was not capable of writing, but it was the attitude with which he wrote those first two chapters. I think about my attitude when I think about those things that imprisoned me, and my attitude is nothing like Paul's attitude when he was physically in prison. So today we're going to look at Paul's imprisonment, why he was there, and we're going to look at how he looked at that imprisonment in his life. We're going to look at Paul's attitude towards imprisonment and how it showed his belief in several things. The first thing that Paul's imprisonment showed in his life or showed him about his God was the providence of God. See, we've forgotten today that there's a providence of God. We've forgotten today that God is sovereign and in control of all things. We've forgotten today that things happen in our life not to the surprise of our Heavenly Father. We oftentimes have situations pop up and we act as if God didn't know anything about it. I tell you, church, He knows everything. 
He knows the day that you are going to be born. He knows the day that, that you will breathe your last breath. And he knows everything that will happen between those days to you. There is not a thing in your life that is going to catch God by surprise. God is in control of all things and allows all things to happen. You may look at your life and say, I can't believe God did this to me. Sometimes we do it to ourselves. God allows it to happen. Most times I find in my life it's me that causes the problem, not God. He doesn't have to chastise me as much as I cause ridiculous situations in my own life. He just uses those things that I cause as chastisement to me. I was suspecting to hear more amens on that. I guess I'm the only one in the room. But think about this providence of God. See, Paul had spent a lot of his ministry locked away behind bars. When we think about Paul, I don't know about you, but I think about him sitting in a tent with people coming to learn from him and, and to hear from him and to, to, to get this intellect. But to do that, they would have had to have also been locked away in prison or have had to go visit him. And he spent a lot of this time locked away, and he, he knew that he was locked away for various reasons. For various reasons. Let's look at the first reason he was locked away. Flip back with me to Acts. It's going to require use of your Bible this morning. I hope you have one with you. If you don't, look on with your neighbor. If they can't find the books that we're looking for, tell them to flip to the very front. There is an index in the front, and they'll be able to find where that's at. But Acts should be back just a couple of three books to the left of where we were in Ephesians. Let's look in Acts 21, and let's look at one of his imprisonments here. I find this imprisonment interesting because this is the first opportunity we get to see Paul being imprisoned by a group called the Jews. And in the 27th verse of the 21st chapter of the book of, of Acts, it says this, Now, when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. So now you see this picture. There's Jews in the temple, church, God's house. That's where the Jews are. And there's this hymn, which is Paul. And it says they laid hands on him in verse 28, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he has also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. He goes on then to say, and all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together, seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. Now as they were seeking to kill him, let me repeat, these were the Jews in the temple, drug Paul out, and it says, now as they were seeking to kill him. Does that not give you pause? That there's a group from the church, drug a guy outside, and they're going to kill him? If one of y'all don't amen the right way this morning, we're going to drag you out the front door and kill you. Does that even sound logical? But wasn't that what? Wow. <laughs> Preach on, sister. But, but that's what it says. It says that they were going to kill him. It goes on to say, news came to the commander of the garrison. Now, what's the commander of the garrison? That's the Roman guard. That's the guy in charge of the Roman guard, which is right next door to the temple, by the way. It says, so this news came to the Roman garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. Now, what did the Roman guard decide? I got to get a hand on this. I'm here to keep peace. So what does he do? He says, he immediately took his soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when he saw the commander and the soldiers, when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. They said, oh, 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 oh the army's here. The police have showed up. The popo's on scene. Let's quit hitting this guy. 
So Paul's saved just because these Roman centurions showed up. They quit beating him. Goes on to 33 to say, Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. And he asked who he was and what he had done. And when... And some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. They couldn't even agree on what he had done wrong. They just didn't like him. Some were screaming he did one thing. Some were screaming he did another. The commanders, whoa, what's going on? They got him locked up. Look at what the commander does. So when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks, in other words, into the jail. When he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people followed after, crying out, away with him. This is the Jews. This is the church. This is God's people. And about beat the man to death. He had to be carried away. See, the entire city was in an uproar. They accused him of bringing a Gentile into the temple. What's significant about that in relation to Ephesians? See if you were listening a couple of weeks ago. Do you remember in Ephesians, we mentioned a part about a separating wall. Do you remember that? In Ephesians chapter 2, I believe it was, chapter 2 there. Yeah, about verse 14. It says, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation. It's in Ephesians chapter 2. We talked about that middle wall. That middle wall was a wall that was put up in the, in the church, in the temple, and it had a court outside they called the court of the Gentiles. Past that wall was the court of the women and the Hebrews. The Gentiles could not even go as far into the temple as the women could. They were to be kept outside, outside of this wall. And what they accused Paul of is bringing this Gentile to God. <laughs> what an amazing thing. This guy brings a Gentile in to hear about God, we're going to take him out in the yard and beat him to death. So the next one of you that brings a visitor that's unsaved, we're going to lynch you to the flagpole. Does that make any sense whatsoever? doesn't to me. But that's what it says happened. You see, Paul had been seized by these guards, locked away in prison for one reason. The Jews hated him. The Jews hated him. Why did they hate him? He told the truth. <laughs> he come to them and he said, that what you do as, as your religious activities, that's not worshiping God. Here's how you worship God. And what you say is only for you. No, it's not just for you. It's for those Gentiles also. And it stirred them so badly that they were going to take him in the very yard of the temple and beat him to death. And he was drugged away by this garrison, this guard of the Romans, and locked away. You may say, well, that's just one incident. How about flip over to chapter 22 of Acts while you're there? Let's take a look at how it ends. Down in verse 30 of chapter 22, going into chapter 23, it says this, verse 30 of chapter 22 of Acts the next day, this is some days later, after Paul has, has uh, been brought before different ones, as Paul's had an opportunity to say, why are you beating me? I'm a Roman citizen, and they stopped beating him because of that. It leads into this, this deal where now they're going to take him before the Sanhedrin, so to speak. And it starts off, it says, the next day, because he wanted to know for certain, the he there is that commander of the garrison. The garrison commander wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews. He released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all the council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before him. So this is logical. The garrison had come running when they heard all the Jews were in an uproar trying to kill him. So now they take this man and they set him before the chief priest and the council, the Sanhedrin. Okay, so there he sits. The Romans want to find out from the Jews firsthand what's the issue. 
They unbind him, set him down. In verse 23, uh, or chapter 23, verse 1, it says, Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him in the mouth. <laughs> if I ask you to give a testimony, be careful. We might start striking in the mouth if you get too elaborate there. Now, what it says, the, the high priest, the guy in charge, the preacher, said, I don't like what he said. Bust him in the mouth. <laughs> Amazingly enough, in verse 3, it says, Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. <laughs> wow. <laughs> See why I love Paul? He never held his tongue. He said, you think that you're whitewashed from within, and really you're only whitewashed from without. Even when he was locked away, standing before them in persecution, was beaten, he looked at him and called him exactly what he was, a whitewashed wall. He says, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and you do not command me to be struck, and you do command me to be struck contrary to the law. He's saying, look, you hypocrite. You say that you uphold the law and you have a Roman citizen struck in the mouth for what he said, which is against that law that you're supposed to be upholding. He goes on in verse 4, it says, And those who stood by said, Do you revile God's high priest? Then Paul said, I love this tongue-in-cheek. I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Then it says, but when Paul perceived that one part was Sadducees, the other part Pharisees, he cried out in the council, men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. He says, Pharisees, I'm one of you, and I'm being judged because of the hope and resurrection of the dead. That dead he's talking about is Jesus. He goes on in 7, it says, When he had said this, a dissension arose among the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. Why was it divided? It says, For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection. There is no angels. There are no spirits. But the Pharisees, they confess both. So the Sadducees says there's no, resurre no resurrection. The Pharisees say there is a resurrection. The Sadducees say there's no angels. There's no spirits. The Pharisees says there are angels. There are spirits. So you see this dividing line that happened? So here they start this problem. It says, Then there arose a loud outcry, in verse 9, and the scribes and of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man. But if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. What are they saying? If this guy happens to be doing God's work, we're not getting involved. They back off. In verse 10 it says, Now when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. Yet another time, Paul was hauled off to prison. What's so amazing about both of those stories? And there are more. We won't take time this morning. Do you see who was behind his arrest in both of those stories? It was the Jews. It was the Jews. But flip back over to Ephesians quickly. In verse 1, unless I misplaced a translation that's different, my Bible does not say, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of the Jews. Does yours? Paul was locked away because of the Jews. But notice he says nothing of that when he says, I am Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. Lest you think that was a 
case all to itself. Flip back to Acts 25. And let's look at another group that gave him a fit. Acts 25, verse 23. We need to hurry along this morning, so I'll start reading as you flip. And it says this, So the next day when Agrippa and Bernice, Agrippa and Bernice, it was King Agrippa, there was Bernice that was on the council. The next day after Paul had been taken there, after Paul had appeared before Agrippa, after Paul had pled his case, it says, So the next day when Agrippa and Bernice had come with pomp, Pomp and circumstance. Can you see the king coming in this great barrage with him? And it says, And he entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city. At Festus' command, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us, you see this man about whom the whole assemblies of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. So this Festus, who happened to be in charge, was petitioned by the Jews to kill Paul because they said he didn't deserve to live any longer. See the picture? In 25 he says, But when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death, and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. So what's he saying? I couldn't find a thing wrong, and I would have let him go. (laughs) But Paul said, I want to talk to Caesar. Paul himself said, I want to talk, I want to appeal this all the way to Augustus. He moves on in 26 to say, I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore, I brought him out before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. He says this, Agrippa, I want you to hear what's going on with this man Paul, and I want you to decide what his crime is. And then I'm going to take him to Caesar. I'm going to take him to Augustus. You see, the commander brings Paul to the church leaders, as we saw in the last, the Jews, and they wanted him bound and imprisoned. Now he brings him before Festus, or Festus brings him before King Agrippa, and he brings him with one purpose, to have charges placed upon him. How does that work out? Flip over just a page or so to the 30th verse of the 26th chapter, and let's look at how that works out. It says, when he had said these things, now what are these things? In 26, if you want some interesting reading for the afternoon, in 26, Paul talks about in the first about 11, 10 or 11 verses, he talks about who he was before Christ. He picks up there about the 12th verse, and he talks about through 12 down through, say, roughly 17 or 18, about his conversion experience on the road to Damascus. In other words, he talks about who he was before Christ. He talks about what happened when he met Christ. Then he starts off in about verse 19, on down through uh, about 23, 24 range. And Paul talks about who he is now that he's met Christ. So if you want some interesting reading, go home and read that this afternoon. We're going to pick up at the tail end of the story where in verse 30 it says, When he had said these things, in other words, he had told all those things to the king, the king stood up as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with him. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, This man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. He's done nothing. Nothing we can find. Don't stop there. 32 it says, And Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. In other words, right now, he'd be a free man if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. But look what happens in verse 1 of chapter 27. He says, And when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment, even though 
They stood together and said, there is nothing that this man deserves to die for or to be locked up for. Where do we see him in the first verse of 27? Bound, chained, put in with other prisoners. You see, the Jews wanted him imprisoned. Yet he didn't say, I, Paul, the prisoner of the Jews. The Romans locked him away many times. Yet he didn't say, I, Paul, the prisoner of the Romans. You know, there was also another person that was very involved in his being locked up. Look back with me in Acts 20. Acts chapter 20. I'm going to jump down to 22 and kind of come in the middle because we're short on time. It says this, and see now, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem. When you get to that in your, book, in your Bible, I hope as you read that verse 22 of chapter 20, that, that Spirit there is in a small s. It's significant that it is. It says, and see now, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there. It's a small s because it's not the Holy Spirit he's bound by. Whose spirit is it? His own. His own spirit. He says, I want to go to Jerusalem. I want to go to Jerusalem. And he doesn't ask God what the plan is. He says, I want to go to Jerusalem. You ever been there? Ever been there in your walk? Do you know why he wanted to go to Jerusalem? He had a heart for the Jews. He at one time was a Pharisee. He knew all about the Jewish religion. He knew all about its fallacies. He knew all about the fact that they proclaimed to love God and didn't. He knew all about their, their background. He knew many of them. And he desired within his heart to spread the good news of the gospel to the Jews. But what does the Bible tell us was Paul's directive from God? Spread the gospel to us, the Gentiles. See, until Paul came on the scene, the message had not been spread to the Gentiles. Paul came on the scene with the purpose from God to spread the message to the Gentiles. Yet here he says, the Spirit bound me to send me off to, to Jerusalem. Yet we know that that Spirit was not the Spirit of God. In Acts 21, over just a couple of pages probably from that, in verse number 7, it says this, and when, he had finished, and when we had finished our journey from Tyre, we came to Ptolemus, greeted the brethren, and stayed there with them one day. And on the next day, we, who were Paul's companions, departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now this man had four uh, virgin daughters who prophesied. And we stayed many days. A certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Now, here's where we're at. When Paul was over in the 20th chapter, he was saying, I'm being sent by my spirit to Jerusalem. The elders of the Ephesian church that were with him were saying, Paul, that's not a smart idea. If you go to Jerusalem, you'll be killed. If you go to Jerusalem, you'll be locked away. Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, you'll be against God's will. Yet Paul said, I'm going to Jerusalem. We look over in 21 as he's making his journey there in that chapter 21. And in verse 11, we pick up where Agabus has showed up. It says, when he had come to us, Agabus that is, he took Paul's belt and he bound his own hands and feet. Now, Agabus took Paul's belt, wrapped up his own hands and his own feet, sitting in front of Paul. And he says, thus says the Holy Spirit, not small s, capital S. So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. What was Agabus prophesying? The same things the elders at the Ephesian church was telling Paul. You go to Jerusalem, you'll be locked up. 
Yet Paul, as we know, continues on that journey. Paul continues to head that way. So Paul was imprisoned because the Jews wanted him imprisoned. Yes. Paul was bound and imprisoned by the Romans because the Romans were trying to save face and do what the Jews wanted and to keep peace. But Paul ultimately was locked up in jail because of his own foolish decisions. You ever sat in that seat? Many of your circumstances today are not because of the government. They're not because of your friends and neighbors. They're because of your decisions. And Paul had these three excuses of why he was imprisoned. Yet it reads in verse 1, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. Do you see how he understood the providence of God in all things? Paul understood this. You may lock me up, but it's only because God allowed it. You may bring struggles in my life, but it's only because God allows it. I may lose everything that I have and be destitute in in poverty, but it's only because God allows it. I may in my body get cancer. I may die. I may struggle to live. But it's not anything other than God's providence in my life. Paul said, I am locked away in prison by men and my own choices. Yet I am the prisoner of Jesus Christ. I wish there was some way we could finish this message and we're not going to. (laughs) I'm going to stop right there and tell you that's point one of three points about Paul's imprisonment. First and foremost, that he understood that God is providential in all things. If there's something I want you to hear, church, it's this. Don't lay the blame on someone else for the things that happen in your life. The problem with our society and our world today is this. It's always somebody else's fault. The problem with the things that are going on in our government and our world today is that nobody takes responsibility for anything. You know, if you're struggling in your Christian walk today, I would dare say it's the third reason in Paul's imprisonment. It's your fault. (laughs) You know how I know that? Because my God tells me if I have done anything that is wrong, which is called sin, which would break my harmony and fellowship with him, there's an answer. And that answer is to fall on my face before a holy God and ask for forgiveness. John 1, 9, you hear me repeat it. First John 1, 9, you hear me repeat it quite often whenever I pray. It's my life verse in prayer to my God. It says that God is faithful. He is faithful and he is just to forgive me of my sins. And to go on cleansing me from all unrighteousness. The book of 1 John's was not written to the lost. The book of 1 John's was written to you, the church. So it tells me this. You will sin. You have been saved. But you will sin. That sin will imprison you. That sin will lock you up in bars to keep you out of fellowship with your God. But there's a way out of that prison. It's to ask a holy God, a providential God that's in all situations, in all things, that promises to never leave you or forsake you, a God that loved you so much he hung his own begotten son upon a cross to die for your sins. That God still forgives sins. And he still forgives your sins, church, when you're willing to fall on your face before him. And you may say, Pastor, I keep hearing you talking about coming to the altar and pray. And it is disheartening. It is disheartening as a pastor to see an empty altar. 
when I know the church is not perfect. Because what does that tell me? It tells me you're more concerned about what your neighbor in the pew sitting next to you thinks about you than what your God does. If you're not willing to come to this altar and fall before God, I pray His mercy upon you. If you're so hung up on what someone else thinks about you, over what God thinks about you, that you would stand there in defiance of what God is calling you to do, I pray God's mercy upon you. Did a funeral service yesterday. It's abnormal in a funeral service to give the gospel message, but Cheryl was there, and she can tell you yesterday the only thing that was preached was God and all of his glory through his son Jesus Christ and what he did upon a cross for our sins. In one of the most hurtful times in any family, someone came to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Yet I preach time after time in the comfort of this place where there is no persecution, there is no pain, and no one responds. You know why? We don't think we need God, that's why. I'll be honest with you, church. Your desire to not come and humble yourself before your God if you're saved is a sign of defiance and it's called sin. Today I ask that you examine your heart and see those things that imprison you as a Christian. And it's sin in your life. You may be sitting here this morning and think, well, you know, I don't know what I'm imprisoned by because I don't even know who this God is because I've never come to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I've got the best news of all for you. The best news of all for you is called the gospel, which is the good news. The good news is that God knows you in your sin, for he tells us in his word that he knew us while we were yet in the depths of sin. And while we were yet sinners, he sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to crawl upon a cross and die for that sin, because death is the penalty for sin. And I'll tell you, you either apply the blood of the death of his only begotten son or you'll pay for it yourself. To apply the blood of his only begotten son means you will spend eternity in a place called heaven. To pay for that sin yourself means you will be separated from God for all of eternity in a place called hell. A place that says there is fire and the gnashing of teeth. And like I said yesterday when I was doing this funeral, many think that they'll go to hell and be with their friends and they'll hang out and do what they do here. Absolutely not. What makes hell, hell is the absence of God. What makes hell, hell is the absence of His grace and His mercy to withhold those things that could penalize us here on this earth. When you get to hell, you'll be separated from everyone, living in a place that is of utter torment, and you'll live that way for eternity. Death is not in when you draw your last breath. Life is going to be for eternity, and death for some will be all eternity in a place called hell. This morning, the invitation goes like this. Maybe you don't know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. You come this morning. I'll explain to you just how simple that process is to come to know him as your Lord and Savior. Maybe this morning you're a part of this church. You're a part of the fellowship. You know you're saved. You know that you'll wind up in heaven when you draw your last breath. But you also know there's something in your heart that's imprisoned you. There's some prison door that's been shut because of sin. This morning you come and ask for forgiveness of that because I know my God tells me he will forgive you of that sin if you'll humble yourself, if you'll fall on your face before him and ask. Maybe this morning you're looking for a church home. Maybe you're trying to find somewhere that preaches the word and stands on that word and tries to live in such a way to glorify God. I tell you, 
you found the church. Why? Because I know the hearts of the folks here. It's nothing about the pastor. It's all about the body. And the body here loves God with all of their heart. Come be a part of us. Why is it important to join a church? Why is it important to be a part of a church? Number one, God instructs us to be a part of the body. We are saved as a part of the body and whole. But you have to be able to work within that body. To be effective, to use the gifts and talents God has blessed you with, you need to be a member of a local body so those gifts and talents can be used to edify and glorify the church and God himself. So maybe this morning you want to come and do just that. However God speaks to your heart today, I ask that you listen to him and and that you respond. If you would, pray with me. Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.